Well, hello there. Welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn-Wardner, and in this episode, I'm joined by author, runner, open water swimmer, and all-round go-getter, Alexandra Hemsley. Now, the first time I came across Alex was a few years ago when I was still very much caught in my running bug. And I would run five, six, sometimes seven times a week. And, you know, they weren't little short stints. I was doing kind of an average of about six kilometers a day. You know, just felt right at the time. And I think I was on the cusp of running the Royal Parks Half Marathon for the children's charity Click Sergeant. And I read her book, Running Like a Girl, which made my desire to run really catch fire, even more than it was already. And what I loved about the book was that for me, it was the polar opposite of the narrative that's pushed by all the health and fitness magazines. And yes, yes, before you groan, I know I write for some of these titles, but yet I often find myself grimacing and cringing at the cover lines that promise a shred or a certain amount of fat loss in two weeks, even though I know the science of these things is that it's the promise of this that makes people, women, buy them in the first place. For me, though, as someone who is not a natural built athlete, I'm more... Kardashian in physique than Radcliffe Um, it makes me feel as though I'm at the bottom of a slippery slope trying to scrabble to be someone that when I use the sensible part of my brain I know I can't ever physically be I'm never going to have Meghan Markle's legs forget junk there's a fair amount of chunk in my trunk and I think I think I've come to terms with that but that's not to say I can't be active and set myself physical goals But it's this veiled promise of being the person who's staring out at me from the cover of the magazine that makes me buy expensive gym gear I can't really afford and attempt classes I'm not really physically capable of because I feel as though if I have those two parts of the equation, then surely the result of long lean limbs and yoga toned arms will follow. Well, guess what? That's a nonsense. In Running Like a Girl, I really felt as though Alex was talking to me. It's realistic. It acknowledges that we can't be perfect all of the time and that venturing out on the road to run or to the gym is as much a mental battle as it is a physical one. It's also the closest I've ever come to seeing a 1980s movie montage in print because you see, feel and understand the challenges, the battles and the obstacles and then you see, feel and understand her successes when, despite all of those things, she's achieved them. And I got it. Like, I really got it. Because I've never run on the road, in the gym, done a boot camp, a spin class or a bums and tums without feeling like I didn't belong there. Like I was the runt of the litter who should be rewarded for having the gumption for just turning up. And God damn it, it felt good to know that I wasn't alone in this neighbourhood. Subsequently, I then started tweeting Alex to say how awesome the book was. And I told everyone I knew that they had to read it. And it put Alex very much on my radar as someone I really wanted to follow because I found her output really valuable. I felt so happy that there was someone with this voice out there in the world who was basically speaking the truth. Running Like a Girl isn't by any means her only book. And in fact, she writes regularly for many publications. And I'll put the links to some of her recent articles in the show notes on iTunes and emmaguns.com. I've actually just started reading her first book, X in the City, Your Nobody Till Somebody Dumps You, and I highly recommend it. Again, she articulates thoughts and feelings in a way that I can really get on board with, and it's just like she's pulled them out of my own brain and just made them sound a hell of a lot better in print. When we organised this recording, I wanted to talk to her about writing, about sharing not only her successes, but the obstacles she's faced, about her follow-up to Running Like a Girl, Leap In, which charts her journey to become a competent open water swimmer, as well as um, we touched on her experiences with, uh, with IVF. Um, 
leap in again is starting from zero if you like like saying right I want to in the same way she said I want to run it was I want to swim and it's charting the fact that it takes work and she says something in this podcast which I genuinely may get tattooed on me or just made into a big print which is less permanent but no less impactful I think of when she talks about achieving your goals she says a goal is a thousand tiny decisions and it's so right it's that moment in the morning when your alarm goes off and you'd have a choice you can hit snooze get under the covers and get all nice and snuggly or you can make that tiny decision to get up have a coffee and get in your gym gear and go out and it's a tiny decision and it really resonated with me and again I genuinely might get that made into a print I really hope you enjoy this. During the conversation, we both mentioned some articles and references. And of course, all of those links will be in the show notes. And you know this if you're a regular listener. I love hearing from you. So why not drop me an email to thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. For now, though, here she is, the brilliant Alexandra Hemingsley on The Emma Gunn Show. Well, this is lovely. Because when you've stalked somebody on social media and then you find themselves in your home, (laughs) it feels equally inappropriate and wonderful. Alexandra Hemingsley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I stalked you, and I I use stalk as an exaggeration. (laughs) I fangirled you, which sounds far less aggressive and punishable, um, on Twitter when I read Running Like a Girl about four or five years ago. Mm Because you 100% spoke to the girl that I've always been, which is not sporty, but quite determined what I want to be Mm -hmm. and who wants to be a better version of myself. Yes. Um, Do you want to just let the listeners know a little bit about running, what running like a girl was about? Well, it kind of came out of Twitter because I had done one marathon in 2007 and then I moved to Brighton in 2010 and I was doing lots of running sort of two, three years following that. And I was loving it and I'd kind of moved a bit single and miserable to the seaside and running really helped me to get to know my city and it changed my perspective on things and what I was capable of. And and it was early Twitter before, like... Pre-Instagram. Nazis and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, it was really joyful and I used to tweet little pictures of things that I'd seen because there was no Instagram and mm. it was a really kind of gleeful thing and people, possibly even you, started to tweet me saying, you seem to really like running and you seem normal. Mm. What can I read about it? Because I was also reviewing books and writing a lot about books then too. And I would be like, this, I, ca- I need to find something that in good conscience I can recommend mm. to people because the market was completely split down the middle then. So there were either quite masculine um, narrative non-fiction mm-hmm. books which were like day three in the desert and <laughs> four of my toenails had fallen off but I persisted. And they were a bit like, oh, I only really wanted to sort of try 5k <laughs> or they Just were to the end of my street thing yeah or they were pink and they were how how running can help you get your bikini body Ugh. and there was nothing in the middle that was just sort of you might like goals that mm. are not to do with who how the world sees you but are to do with how you see the world mm. for women they were very masculine and, and extreme or they were to do with looks and very superficial yeah yeah and so it was quite weird because I, I sort of 
one I, I'd worked in publishing for like 12 years by this mm. point where I know you know it's like when you want to work in an industry which other people are interested in you kind of get that thing when you go and see your mum and dad and people are like so what can I do to and I've been saying for 12 years well you just have to write what you know about and mm. what no one else is writing about and suddenly yeah <laughs> after after blithely dispensing this information for years and years the penny dropped and I realized that there was no one who was writing this mm-hmm. and I had a I just changed agents because I was doing quite a lot of ghostwriting and she she'd agreed to be my agent for ghostwriting and I had this sort of quite tense cup of coffee with her when I'd kind of written my pitch for running like a girl to tell her and I was like I know we've only just signed this but I really 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 want to do this book there's nothing like it I know that it has to happen and that mm. someone else is going to do it if not me so let me know if you want me to leave again <laughs> and, <she's, laughs> and that was sort of the strength of my conviction that mm. I really wanted to do the book and instead of saying yes now leave she said no stop stop the ghostwriting for a few months do this and so it was the it felt quite kind of almost easy because mm. it seemed so obvious because people were asking for this book that I was looking like scrolling around the internet <laughs> trying to find something to recommend people that they weren't mm. um finding and I wasn't finding so I wrote it <laughs> and that's and I think it was one of those books that I started reading I seem to remember it's one of the first books I read on a kindle as well so it was like Ooh, double yeah. exciting <laughs> and it was to say that I just um, consumed it in just mm. one sitting is not an exaggeration. I really did. Again, I have written for magazines that I groan at their cover lines, <laughs> but it, I had, I guess, always been quite susceptible to this idea of being. Um, once you get to your best version of yourself, you'll look like the girls on the front of those magazines. Yeah, and so. I am a yo-yoer, and so when I used to get down to, like, a weight that I felt comfortable with, I would be massively disappointed that yeah. I didn't look like those girls on magazines, and then I would... Or felt like how you felt they felt. Yeah, <laughs> and it was just the way that, I think, as you say, it was about how you feel about yourself and the goals that you set yourself. Yeah, and and what you see outwards, I saw so much more life by running. Mm. I experienced greater emotional landscape and and physical landscape I learnt to love Brighton and Hove by having to kind of add 3k to a run when I'd run out of seafront and so I'd have to do a loop and then I'd be like oh I think I did I go for dinner here a couple of weeks ago and and that and then that you don't normally always do that when you move somewhere is sort of have to sort of traipse around it quite that much and also just there's something quite specific about marathons, I think, where people are often doing them as a result of grief or after substance abuse mm. or all kinds of things where people have really, really pushed themselves beyond what they ever thought they could be, mm. either emotionally or physically or both. And you, there's such a sort of public-spirited goodwill mm. around them that I found that very heartening and reassuring I was at kind of a bit of a lonely point in my mid-30s and it really did teach me a lot about community and things like that that I had never anticipated running would do did it also give you was it also a motivator yeah because if you I mean I mean so kind of intoxicating when you start running because if you're doing a, a plan it doesn't take that long before you do start to get a little bit better every time mm. 
and it did it it is sort of just the maths of it that mm. if you do the right kind of training and you do get out and you don't tell yourself that you've got out except you really haven't for 10 days mm. you do just get a little bit better every time and you can add half a mile or a mile or a couple of miles mm. on once a week and you you're on this kind of steady upwards trajectory and then and it then I sort of realized I can apply this to other things mm. I can be more than I thought I could be. If and if, if something as arbitrary as running, which I'd never really considered, and you know, like you, I wasn't a sporty girl. Mm. If I can do this, then maybe I can stand up for myself a bit better when I've got to do my invoicing, or <laughs> yeah. I can, you know, you know, hold my own in this kind of conversation with someone who I might otherwise otherwise have been intimidated by, mm. or whatever. It just sort of made me feel maybe I could take up a little bit more space in the world than I had previously believed. And that's really, really beautiful. I like, I love that because <laughs> I do think it's about building your self-esteem and it is about measure, running is about measuring against yourself. It's like, what did I do yeah. yesterday? Can I do a little bit better today without getting too yes. competitive? Or just even the very act of getting out of bed. Yeah. When do you run, by the way? Are you a morning runner? I am usually, but I do, I like running after dark as well. I do quite like, especially on the seafront when it's quiet, because sometimes it can feel a bit performative (laughs) running on the seafront here, especially in the summer and stuff. So sometimes I do like to go and do a bit of sprinting on the seafront when there's no one else around, so... But I generally, I would I would choose morning if I had infinite childcare and all the day. <laughs> now, tell me about um, what it must have been like to write this book mm-hmm. and then have people like me, strangers, <laughs> say you've said the things that I had been thinking. Like, d- oh. It must have been quite incredible to realise that you were articulating, not just for yourself, but for a, for a massive group of women who perhaps felt underrepresented. It was the most gratifying thing in the world, partly because as a writer, sort of, and, and as a reader, like I've read since I was tiny, mm. and it's that most magical moment ever when you're reading a book, and even if it was written like 200 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever, when you when when there's sometimes you can love a whole book just for two lines, mm. when you have that moment of just... I'm not alone. I have. I'm not the only one that had that thought yeah. that I was either slightly embarrassed by or slightly taken aback by or whatever. Um, and it's it's such a magic feeling, like you're kind of reaching across generations mm. or ages or whatever, and just sort of touching someone and going, "Oh, it wasn't just me." So the idea that I could do that to other people, it honestly, it felt like you know, I'd got an invisibility cloak or something. <laughs> comparably magical it was just amazing and also just so many people now running like a girl was published nearly five years ago Mm. and so many people have run so many miles and raised so much money now and the number of times people have sent me pictures of their medals and things like that it's just like in a really nerdy physics way I love that level of actual energy Mm. of human beings that's kind of people the number of miles that have been done and people that have moved and just the energy that's been put to positive things makes me so 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 happy (laughs) we were talking before we started recording about positivity breeds positivity Mm. and so to have put out something that has had this massive ripple effect across the globe yeah that as you say has led to people pounding on pavements running marathons setting goals that they weren't potentially yeah perhaps potentially didn't think they could achieve that must 
it's lovely and I do try really hard on social media not to just put up pictures of things that have pissed me off or complain <laughs> about things I've heard on the radio or whatever. I try really hard mm. to... Because it's so nice when you just have got two seconds in a shop queue and you look at your phone and someone and you, if something just makes you smile, mm. it's so much better for you yeah. than if you look at something and you're like, what? Someone said what? And you yeah. might never, that whole fuss, you know, a politician might have said something for five minutes and sometimes if you don't look at your phone for four hours, the whole thing's died away again and it seems silly. Exactly. But if you get in in that mm. moment, it's... You know, it can be, it can just raise your blood pressure for a day. Yeah, it's rants and it's also um, uh, that mo- or that feeling when, and then someone puts up something a bit bland, like, or that feeling when your computer doesn't start yeah. or something. Like, <laughs> I don't mind that. I, I feel on, like my day at would least, have been fine without it. Yeah, <laughs> my day would have been fine without it. But then when someone's just put something smiley or silly, mm. then it does. Um, Make me smile. Mm. <laughs> now, I'm not wanting to project my own running life onto you, <laughs> but I do want to ask you, so when I was running, mm-hmm. I would motivate myself because I'm very much somebody who responds to outer expectations. I've just done an, a podcast with Gretchen Rubin. I love her. I went to see her talk. Oh, at the Red Thing? Uh, no, at the other one, the <gasps> not School of Life. What was it? The Academy of Ideas? Oh, okay. Is that what it's called? I yeah, was yeah. I'm an obliger, so I'm a questioner. Are you now? Yes. Oh, well, that would explain why you wrote that book. Yeah, I because I went with my agent, who is an obliger. Okay. <laughs> um, mercifully for me, and we both spent the whole thing kind of slyly, half looking at each other and pointing and smiling at each other whenever she was talking about whichever one we were. But I realised that I was totally a questioner because, in a way, that was how. I didn't write Running Like a Girl until I knew that it was wanted. Yes, yes. <laughs> I was like, I was able to say with confidence, I know that this book, there are people that, who would read it. Because um, ah. I'm, whereas previously, all the other books I tried to write, I just had sort of collapsed under the weight of me sitting there going, but why? Why would someone oh want to read it? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> we are going to come back to that, but I just want to ask you, so... With with my running, I I was connected to an app, and yes. I, the thing that would get me out of bed was I would go and do my run, and at one point I was running like eight k every morning. Wow! And I yeah. and I'm an all or nothing kind of a girl, mm. between seven and eight k, and then I'd get in, and I'd be like so keen to get on my Wi-Fi so that I could share it on Twitter, and I every time I then go out to a work thing, people would be like, oh, have you already done your run this morning? Yeah, and it was sort of twofold. First of all, it got me out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> But also it kept me doing it the next morning. Yeah. Because I was like, people are going to respond and people are going to um, think that I'm a runner and that makes me feel yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, But then I think the inevitable happens with every runner's life is you sort of stop Plateau. and slow down. Yeah. Or, yeah, like if you, I think once I did a half marathon, I didn't know, well, what next? Well, it's difficult because there's a sort of, percep- that I got that for like years. Mm. What next? So are you going to do an ultra marathon? So are you going <laughs> to do like an only uphill marathon? Or how, how are you going to whittle your time down even further? And and it seemed like without such a narrow view mm. of what you're getting out of running, if, yeah. if all that you're getting out of it is like numbers, I mean, not, I'm not super big on numbers anyway, <laughs> but... It was, the spectrum of a run can, can be like, it's continuing to change my mood, mm. or it's continuing to allow me to, you know, take 
the tube home and read rather than feel I had to walk home or right. things like that. There are so many different reasons that aren't quantifiable by mm-hmm. an app. I know I, when I... One of the reasons I started getting more into swimming was because I was so bored of this idea that you either had to go further or be faster. Yeah. That an app... It's like an app doesn't know how to say... Oh, wasn't this, didn't the sky look lovely today? Because <laughs> it yeah. doesn't know. Um, and I was like, "Come on, app, yeah. <laughs> know my moods better." Yeah, that's so and true. It, it was like I don't. I I found myself completely cramped by just the numbers. Mm. And so swimming was lovely for that because you could do the same swim and it will be way more different every mm. day according yeah. to the weather. Than I mean, a run is a bit more different according to the weather, but swims were much more. But now I've kind of returned to running more calm about (laughs) yeah because it is one of those I feel like it is one of those pursuits that you can become ultra competitive with yourself and it's like yeah well I'll I'll just go that down that side street and I know I'll add like another 500 meters onto my yeah the Gretchen Rubin thing's really interesting because I hadn't what was it it's it's obliges questioners yeah and the upholders or was it the obliges so one of them I was interested that they will only go for a run if they're in a club or going with someone because it's not the idea of letting themselves down that could be motivating, but the idea yeah. of letting another person down. Yeah. I'm totally not like that. I, For me, running has to be the feeling of, I'm just going to dart out the door, I'm going to do it right now, mm. um, or fitting it in around other stuff to do with me. <laughs> I'd feel horrendous pressure if if it was always tethered to someone else. I'd feel like, oh my God, I'm, but I'm so slow, do you really want to run with me? <laughs> things like that me too but I do like being tethered to them via an app so that I can yeah did it (laughs) yeah which is weak (laughs) I mean when I started running it was 2007 and it was before everyone had iPhones and to find out how far a route was I had this thing that was like a pen which instead of a nib had a tiny tiny wheel on the end and you'd go on like an A to Z or a map and you'd wheel the pen so it was like a pizza slice on the end but a tiny tiny Oh, there's a Mac eyeliner, actually, that has adopted the exact same technology. Oh, yeah, I can see that would work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was how you would do it to see... So if you needed to do a 12-mile run, you'd have to open up a map wide and go... All the streets you were planning to do. And then you'd have to kind of keep wiggling to see if you got to 12 miles yet. And then come home. And I did all my first runs with just, like, street names all around South... Written on Northwest London, all written up my arm. And there was, and I, I still did it. I, I wanted to do it enough, yeah. but it was quite lonely. And mm. I also, I imagine, possibly quite inaccurate at times. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's no kidding an app. That's for sure. No, there's no kidding an app. Um, I, I am curious what you think about women's magazines, particularly the ones that focus on health and fitness mm. and the messaging that they push out there because I feel very conflicted by it yeah I get sucked in but then I hate myself for getting sucked in I my my pet hate with these magazines which has come out of since running like a girl where they've asked commissioned me to do pieces is is the sort of bad science when a spurious I don't know like a kind of brand of coconut oil or something (laughs) has commissioned some research (coughs) And it was done on like 40 people and mm. was with a highly leading question or whatever. And then the women's magazine will manage to get a 900 word feature out of this piece of research mm. that is sort of telling you that something is a trend or something is how we should all be living. And that kind of 
misleading science in health and fitness publications mm. I think is really it's it's if not dangerous then just slightly unhealthy mm. whereas I, I I've just become quite kind of highly strong about really going like clicking the link back to see what the actual research was right um so often it's like you know um it turn you know we should all be eating more chocolate because it turns out you have better sex after you've eaten chocolate and it's like a <laughs> oh, hold on this massive multinational just commissioned this chocolate research and it was 30 people in stoke that were given some free chocolate of course they were happy when you asked them about their sex lives they just they were on a massive sugar high yeah. and that kind of thing um but i do think there's a sort of unique relationship that women have with their bodies that mm. discussion about exercise and health and stuff I like that there's a market that's specific mm. but I don't always agree with how that market is <laughs> behaving um yeah and I find the cover lines I mean I can sometimes have to like pull my hat down when I walk past <laughs> magazine stands to because of some of the the implication that still, mm. even after all this time, everything should be to do with being lean. Mm. And it's, oh yeah. Well, it's, there's a preferred body type. And if you don't, and that body type is sort of long, lean and quite boyish in girls. Like if you look at yeah. covers, it's always, you know, there's very, you rarely see a very small waist. And then, yeah. And then it sort of, it, it, I just think it's all quite muddy. I find it um, irresponsible. But I, I know, having worked in the magazine industry, I've, I've been really susceptible to it. Yeah. And I've gone on shoots, so many shoots, with celebrities, people who've been on the covers of magazines. And I see them in the flesh. And they are the sort of person that if you worked with them in an office, in, you know, doing an admin role, they would be your skinny friend. Yeah. They yeah. are they are they are smaller than average humans who look very yeah. good on camera. Yeah, fact. And it's and there's sort of always, the argument always given is as well that these are the things that sell, mm. and that's because people buy what they're comfortable with. I buy the same brand of I don't know bread or whatever when I'm doing online supermarket shopping because it's the one that I got last time mm. I don't go every time and go ooh what's the best new bread out there today mm. yeah. I go with what I'm familiar with and that's you know you're not always going to pick up the magazine that looks a bit weird and different mm. if it's on if it's in a supermarket magazine stand obviously you are if you've gone to your specialist magazine shop for all yeah. those kind of magazines that cost £20 <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I find it very, very conflicting. Mm. And, and, but it's just the endless perpetuation of the the idea that exercise has w- one function only. Yeah. And also, I I feel like one week or one month you read a magazine and it's eat avocados, eat as many as you like, they're mm. so great for you. And the next month it's like avocados are bad, be paleo. And, if yeah. you, and I feel like there's just so much confusing messaging out there. And actually, calories in, calories out cardiovascular exercise a bit of strength exercise that's the magic formula yeah but also your how much weight you lose is going to be far more significantly tethered to your diet than your exercise Mm. exercise will only ever help your cardiovascular system and your your strength and your psychological well-being Mm. it's it's not ever going to do that much to Mm. for weight loss if you're you know if you go for a 5k run every day and you still eat two and a half thousand calories which are mostly carbs it's, it's not you're mm. never, never going to lose any weight um but but you're consistently going to be more healthy as a 
fully rounded human mm. being if you're exercising and doing that yeah. than if you're just in pursuit of extreme leanness yeah. and um, to, a, to, to the point of being unhappy. Yes, I agree. Now, we talked about it a minute ago, the book that you wrote before Running Like a Girl... Yes. Now, this was a book about heartbreak. Lesson learnt. This was the <laughs> this was the thing that taught me more than anything else about putting positivity out there. Because I wanted to write a book about heartbreak. Specifically, I wanted to reframe the idea of being dumped as not being always a negative thing. Mm-hmm. That it's a sort of you're a positive person. You're still trying. You know. You know. You kind of. You're not just a sort of doormat mm. if you don't end the relationship. You're just usually the more optimistic of the two or the more hopeful right. or whatever. Because yeah, yeah. um, I realised that, you know, I'd got to 30 and I'd had all these relationships end. And on the whole, it hadn't been me that had ended them, except sometimes it had because of my behaviour. It was just that I was never the one that would say it. Mm. Um, but because I was much younger and I hadn't had any... Ex- I hadn't really done any journalism at this point either. I hadn't had an experience of what it felt like when a large number of people have read your work. And so I wrote this book and really laid it out there and I kind of was almost unfiltered. (laughs) Um, Anything for a laugh, basically. I should have just called the book, Like Me! (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was this, it was 10 years ago. It was the summer my sister got married and it was brilliant. Like my publisher was so, we're gonna, it's going to be in all the airports. So when we got to, my sister got married in Italy. So when we got there, everyone there had um, read or got a copy of the book. And so I was, my sister's younger than me and she had this amazing kind of beautiful Italian hilltop village wedding. Oh, wow. And I was the old sister who'd written a book about being dumped. And I didn't <laughs> understand that if you write a book that's funny about things that were very painful, you've licensed everyone to laugh at it. Uh, So for the whole week we were in Italy, everyone was like, oh yeah, that guy, oh my God, that must have been a nightmare. And people would like suddenly walk up from their sun lounger and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. And I just thought, can you all just shut up about it? But I couldn't say that because I'd written it and gone quite far out of my way to get someone to publish it and publicise it and all of that stuff. So when I... And it did really well for a summer and then didn't kind of have the longevity that Mm. Running Like a Girl has turned out to have. So when I wrote Running Like a Girl, I was way more filtered about what I was prepared to have people have opinions about on me. See, now this is really interesting because I... Have a, I really strongly believe that your failures are oftentimes more important than yes. your successes. Yeah. Not that I'm suggesting that your first book was a failure, but as you said, it informed the way that you wrote in a way that produced yeah. a very successful And it was a book. dead end. It wasn't ever going to... There wasn't really anything I could say once I'd written it mm. because it was completely passive. It was about an experience I'd had that was sort of dependent on other people. Mm. Whereas the running was like, I got up, I did it, I decided Mm. to do it. And it it just completely flipped how I saw things about making stuff happen for oneself. There's quite an interesting symmetry between the the notion of the book, being dumped is not a bad thing. Yeah. And the effect that it had on your life in the sense that you're able to write Running Like a Girl. Yeah. It's not a bad thing that the book had a great summer and then... No, and it completely informed how I wanted my voice to feel in Running Like a Girl Mm. in terms of sort of just a sense of agency and 
ownership over one's own actions mm. that and you know that was how I wanted my voice to sound it was how I wanted my life to be and it was how running was enabling me to be at the mm. time but I don't think I would have felt as much conviction about those things if I hadn't had the experience of sort of writing X and City about things that had happened to mm. me and then the experience of being published sort of happened at me <laughs> and I felt a bit like how do I get control over this again guys and the answer was to just talk a bit less about it and do a bit less yeah do you I mean you you are somewhat of an open book do you do you filter yourself now or do you I try not to um a friend once said to me don't write breaking news which I think is a really good rule of thumb I would be a terrible terrible blogger Mm -hmm. because I think I do write I am quite an open book and I do write quite kind of raw stuff but I have to leave a gap Mm -hmm. Um, because I think otherwise it would be too sort of sad maybe or sad without context or it would be um, I don't know reveal too nobody needs every single detail of every single thing that happens Mm. like there's a lot when when I wrote about IVF I didn't write that much about the specifics of the process because it's really easy to google that mm. what what was important to readers was how it m- made me feel and how it would mm. make them feel um I, not I you know you can you... just go on YouTube and find out about how to do the injections yeah you said something really interesting about the fact that and I found it quite beautiful as someone who has had hormone issues which are completely different but similar in the sense of there have been times in my life when I've had to say, am I really upset? Am I really going through a depressive period? Mm. Or is this that my hormones are playing up again? Yeah. Or is it natural to have ebb and flow in our mm. emotions? There's someone's writing a book about this at the moment. It's going to be brilliant. It's called Hormonal. Oh. Eleanor Morgan, who wrote a book about anxiety. Yes. She's Ellie Morgan. Yeah. She's yeah. completely brilliant. And she's writing about that sort of... Um, interchange between hormones, hormones malfunctioning, completely natural emotions and depression and how completely um, sort of animalistic it can be Mm. and how much is just natural and we shouldn't all be reading magazines all the time and trying to achieve happiness as if it's this one constant state Mm. that we will achieve and then be um, sort of left living in and uh, yeah she I think I think it's going to be really really fascinating because I loved what she wrote about anxiety as we're um talking about IVF we should say that if you as a person with a very deep voice I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either that's why if you're a b2b marketer you should use LinkedIn ads LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Keep hearing us chuckle a bit. It's because we are watching through patio doors. Um, Linus, your lovely little baby boy, um, playing with MK. 
<laughs> playing <laughs> with MK indeed. <laughs> Making very cute faces, I should hasten to add. But the thing that you said was about um, when you were injecting yourself with hormones and you mm. were obviously flooded with an intense, mm. which, which causes a big physiological change. It was that thing of, are these feelings real? Or are they just the hormones? And then if they are just the hormones, how do I then process that and be Yeah, me? Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it was... And it was sort of interesting to go through. Because I the first round of IVF I did, I was really, really open about. Because I thought that you'd take, like, two or three injections and then you'd just go crazy, like, Grace Poole in Jane Eyre, like, <laughs> rampaging. So I sort of want... I, I, I had anticipated this insane forthcoming behaviour and so I told Luke oh, I'm going to do IVF so you know if I say anything really weird at dinner next <laughs> week it's because of the injections and it isn't like that it's not as cut and dried as that it's mm-hmm. like you're just going behind more and more layers of perspex a bit further away from feeling like yourself it's mm-hmm. not like you just lose your mind and I, I really regretted it because then what happened was I had nine million people saying how's the IVF going any news which was awful because all the news was bad then for a few months. And so when I did the second lot, we uh, we didn't tell anyone at all. Um, and it was so much easier. And um, I'm not one for secrets, but just sort of being a bit private for a while was much easier to manage in terms of... Well, I guess as well, if you are good at talking about something in a way that is relatable... Yeah. It's it's a muscle. Like it must be a it must actually be yeah. harder not to than to. Yeah, and I know that being a questioner, <laughs> I could tell that all our appointments at the clinic were taking twice as long as everyone else's because every single thing I was like, "Oh, so what do most people do? Does that look was that what everyone's ovary looks like? And Ooh, what does that <laughs> machine do?" And they were like, "Oh my god." <laughs> did you did you look for people with a voice that you wanted to, like, I want to read about their experience. Did you find comfort No, in I tried really hard not to, because I think with things like that, um, you can find whatever you're looking for. Yeah. So, and there's masses of sort of online communities, and there's a whole strange language around IVF mm. and pregnancy of, like, little angels and all of these mm. sorts of euphemisms for embryos that don't make it or babies that haven't been born yet and all that kind of thing and I found it quite overwhelming it if you just kind of google what does IVF feel like or something you will immediately get to some forums which sincerely do look like all the women have lost their minds (laughs) um and I don't doubt that those women were in a difficult place when they went online Mm. and that perhaps you know lots of them were like seven years old and they didn't know that this stuff was just going to sit there for years and years and their most vulnerable moments would be read by someone as judgmental as me seven (laughs) years later or whatever but you do kind of log on and go oh blimey what are you all on about so I tried really hard because you will just end up in a health food store with a giant bucket of bee pollen and um because everything everyone wants to promise everything and Mm. I was really lucky I was treated really really well by the clinic and they were very pragmatic people um because I think as it becomes more and more of an industry it's Mm. more and more makes me anxious the money making thing Mm. and egg harvesting and all of that in young people yikes yeah celebrities talking about their egg harvesting as well I feel like another thing that we're gonna get girls to do really I find it exceptional um, that it's easier for a 25-year-old to have what is an extraordinarily invasive process. When people talk about IVF, what they're really talking about is 
collecting the eggs. That's the difficult bit, it's the painful bit, that's the needles, that's the operation. The IVF happens while you're out cold, that's mm. just someone in a lab. I mean, I'm sure they're very clever. <laughs> and having it put in afterwards, it's like that's like a smear test, it's nothing, it's mm. really two minutes. Um, the idea that that is easier than a few big companies sorting out their approach to working mothers mm. or their child on-site childcare facilities at Apple, surely it is cheaper to get some really kick-ass crushes going yeah. in Silicon Valley than it is to have egg harvesting. I just can't believe that that is the easier... It's the easier option because it's largely men running those companies mm. and... Um, they don't have to do it. <laughs> it's the same as I read an amazing article, I think it was on Broadly about a year or so ago, about how when they were inventing the pill, they had originally come up with one for men at the same time. But they they canned it because it, like, it had side effects. It made sometimes <laughs> made some of the men a bit nauseous and a bit moody. Some of the men gained weight. And it's like, that's what the woman's pill does, but you still put that one on the market. Well, I was thinking about this the other day, thinking about the genesis of the pill. I don't know why. I think I'd read an article like you, but and I was thinking, wait a minute, the pill would have been invented by men. Yeah. Who, who actively chose to not pursue their research into the male pill because of the side effects. Isn't that insane? Yeah, that and that it seems inescapable to me that that's what's happening with the whole... Because it is, it's those big blue chip companies that are um, really driving that market. Mm. The idea of like, come on, we'll get Google will get the best out of you this decade. You can think about children later because we've saved them for you in a lab. It's like, well, can't I just have my children when I when I want to? And then you can you can build a company that understands mm. that mothers have children. Also, I feel, and this is we're recording this towards the very end of 40 Days of 40. <laughs> and 40 Days of 40 has made me realise a lot. But one of the things is that all of the ambitions that I had at 25, mm. so good childbearing years, good egg years. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe that 10 years between 25 and 35, I thought, yeah, I should be doing this. I should be editing a magazine or I should mm. be doing that cover interview or I should be writing a book. Like I put all this pressure on myself to do stuff. And then... Um, wasn't doing it. So then we'd put mm. a lot of pressure on myself for being a failure. It's doing this 40 days of 40 thing that's weirdly made me realise I wasn't ready then. I didn't have the skills or any of the stuff to do it. Like now I could reasonably go to a publisher and say, I have a book that I would like to yeah. write. And all of those things that I could breeze into because I yeah. spent those years learning. Yeah. So the idea that you would put off let's harvest your eggs so that we can use you then I feel a little bit like but you might not get the best out of people in those 10 years necessarily yeah that but also I would like to have thought that you know all those things that you want to do when you're 28 mm. you we thought that those were the things we wanted to do then because we were receiving very strong messages from the world mm. <laughs> that they that the choice was one or the other Yes. I yes. never thought when I was approaching 30 and thinking about writing my first book, oh, I really want to do this and and have a baby. And there was no, I had no template. All I ever read was pieces about how hard it was to have it all. Mm-hmm. I never read pieces about, well, you muddle through, it will be fine. If you feel like, if you want to have a baby now and edit a magazine, it's doable. Mm. All I ever saw was, 
oh, the working mother's lot. How hard also, it is. if you did have a child and you were editing in a magazine, then you were probably quite steely in a little bit. Yeah, because there was no template and, mm. and it was a completely inflexible environment built around men's working days, which, let's face it, had a woman at the end of them putting the child to bed. Mm. And, you know, really, um, much as I feel anxiety about some of the things about women's magazines a lot of them have been run over the last 20 or 30 years by women who've really fought and kicked back Mm. to make um make them a better place for mothers to work in yeah so i have make a note of that ellie and her book hormonal do you know when it's out by any chance it's literally just been announced so it won't probably be till at least next year okay exciting i've actually been in touch with her to talk about anxiety on this ah, very podcast. Yeah, no, she's a very wise lady. Because oh. she wrote her book on anxiety and then went away and studied and she's now properly being qualified at the Homerton Hospital and is properly... She's not just a journalist with the power of Google anymore. She's studied stuff. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I've had a... Joe McGarry. Do you know Joe McGarry? He was I know at Stylist Magazine. Yeah. She beauty director and now is in a full-time university course in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It, I'm, it's interesting that people have gone from that, from working in magazine environments, because mm. I do think there's a little bit of a waftiness about the surveys and things that get turned into giant features and trends. <laughs> yes. Isn't there just? Well, mm. you have to fill pages, don't you? So yeah. You have to make a story. <laughs> um you have written another book called Leap In. Yes. Which is, um, there is symmetry with running like a girl in the sense of it's your journey to becoming, you're now a very good, what do they call it, open water swimmer? Well, I wouldn't say very good, very enthusiastic. <laughs> capable? <laughs> yeah, capable. Um, I don't, like with my running, I don't go especially fast, but <clears throat> um, I can go for a while. <laughs> I love what you said. I read something you said as a real democracy about swimming. Yes. It is the only sport in the world where women uh, hold world records for the same events as more than men. Mm. So it, the, it, the, the female shape and where body fat is positioned on us um, is extremely compatible with open water swimming. We're like so, seals, aren't we, really? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it's amazing. Like distance open water swimming is something that women are just better at than men, which is really interesting. When it, there's all this stuff raging about, you it's know, women in football and should women be play, paid the same? Like that Billie Jean King film that just mm. came out about um, women, sexes, yeah, it? women earning the same for the same sports and all that kind of thing. It's not, it's not just a steadfast rule, but. No, I, f- I feel like all of that, hopefully in our lifetime, all of that will change and it will be equal. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also gender is getting more and more elastic as well. Mm, that's true. Um, so, yeah, be Very interesting exciting. to see how that all... <laughs> so what was the... Um, you were not the poster girl for running, but you were obviously known <laughs> for... a certain for... type of running, yeah. And everyone for a couple of years was like, so what are you going to do next? You know, what's your next running going to be? And I started writing a book that I thought was going to be wonderful about <laughs> boxing and ballet. I was doing Muay Thai boxing. Oh, yeah. And I was having ballet lessons at the Royal School of Ballet. And um, I was sort of looking at how similar the two were. Like one's hyper-feminine, one's hyper-masculine. But actually, as, to, as far as skill sets go, they're very, very similar to do mm. with the sort of nimble, small, tiny, fast muscle fibre things. 
Um, and I thought it was going to be really interesting and it was terrible <laughs> because I just didn't care enough about doing either of them. Right. I, ballet is in, in, inescapably performative. Mm-hmm. So no matter how dynamic you have to be or how powerful or how beautifully aligned, it's always you're always going to be doing it for someone else. Mm-hmm. It's, it is only for being looked at. And boxing, it's just for hurting people. Like, that you can build tens of thousands of metaphors around life in the boxing ring and all the different kinds of boxing and blah, 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 blah. But it, it's, it's, it's fighting. Mm. And, and both of these things I kind of couldn't... There was no point where I was learning more about myself mm. there. Um, right, we had a little interlude there, but we're back. <laughs> and we're going to pick up exactly where we left off, which was talking about the book that you were going to write yeah, so about boxing and ballet. <laughs> I was busy writing my boxing and ballet book, which I thought was going to be so insightful and wonderful. And meanwhile, I was um, learning to swim because I had really realised that after all this running up and down the seafront, I'd never really got into the sea and I was sort of falling in love with the idea of it. And it was about six months of swimming lessons before I realised that the thing that was really making me feel passionate about sport again after all of this sort of the aforementioned quantifiable running pressure mm. um, was swimming. And <laughs> I, I, I realised that that was the book that I wanted to write. And mm. when I actually spoke to my editor about it and sort of was commissioned to write the book... Um, I didn't really know how it was going to end. I think I was going to do a lot more escapades and go off and do long swims and t- in, in exciting places and at exciting times or whatever. And then what actually happened was I started having the IVF and um, the narrative became much more to do with just keeping going. Mm. And so it became more about cold water swimming and swimming year round in the sea. And again, that thing... That idea of just expecting a tiny bit more of yourself. Just do a little bit more today, do a little bit more today, and then before you know it, it's March, and mm. you did do all winter. And um, that was what the story became, not, you know, then she swam up the Ganges or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that running and swimming, had you started IVF without having done either of those things, do you think the process would have been different do you think that having the muscle memory of having started something as completely inexperienced and then getting mm. very good helped you navigate that journey? Well, I mean, I would hesitate to use very good. I'd mm. say experienced. Mm. I had a lot of self-knowledge about my body. Mm. In one sense, it helped me because I, I always had this sort of solace through the IVF and through pregnancy and having a tiny baby and everything. I knew that having been so rubbish at both of them to begin with, that I would be um, able... I knew that I wasn't scared of going back to being at rock bottom and having to work up again. Mm. Um, so that was there was a solace in that. I didn't have a kind of panic, like, if, you know, I'd always been elite, I would have been like, oh, my God, my whole career, my whole career, whereas I didn't mind being average all over again. Mm. Um, but on but the negative side of it was that because I had quite a lot of self-awareness about my body and I was getting huge amounts of solace from what I could do with it and mm. you know kind of positively exhausting myself that then when I felt the exhaustion of drugs or pregnancy right. or whatever it felt like I'd really lost something of myself when I couldn't run anymore mm. I really really missed it and longed for it and this summer because I ended up having a c-section so obviously they 
I don't know, I somehow naively hadn't realised that with a C-section they do, to get to the baby, have to cut through all your core muscles. Oh, yeah. And that's basically, with swimming, it's like your rudder, your mm. core is how you twist and turn and navigate and all of those things. So I, I got into the sea the minute the doctor said I could again. And <laughs> I had massively underestimated how terrifying that would be to basically be totally out of control. Um and so I really miss that this summer, to have a beautiful summer and to live on the seafront and to not feel quite able to get in the sea. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there were positives and negatives. It helped, but it made me more aware of what I didn't have when I didn't have mm. it. And are you back into running now? You just put up a post about... Yeah, I'm just getting back into it. I'm really excited, actually, because for so long, people have been like, so are you running? What are you doing? What are you doing? And to have a goal again. And also, I... I just, I love talking to people about it. I love it. I love, it's a personal pleasure to persuade someone when they send me a nervous message or whatever. And also I need the people to keep me going this time. <laughs> I've set myself the goal of doing the Berlin half marathon in April. And I specifically chose that because I wanted to be on that trajectory at the same time as all the people doing the London and Brighton marathon. And this is the hardest time of year because you you could quite easily miss out on two and a half weeks of training and just enjoy yourself over Mm. Christmas. And nobody wants to be one of those guys that goes for the Christmas morning run. Um, (laughs) Like, oh, well done, everyone. Yeah, nice Instagram. Um, (laughs) But also, it it helps. You know, Christmas can get to you after Mm. a while, like day four of eating brown food. (laughs) And being inside. Yeah, talking to people that you usually see a couple of times a year or whatever. (laughs) And so I really wanted to be on the path then, and I want to do a big swim at the end of the summer so I can train over the summer. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It's like being allowed to go back into my favourite room in the house for a while, <laughs> after a while. Do you, because I read this, and when I spoke to you about it briefly beforehand, you were like, oh, but I read that you set goals for yourself every year. I don't think I realised that I was. Mm-hmm. But I, I definitely the last 10 years, like since I started running, and I, and I, I think... I had underestimated, I hadn't dared to set myself goals when mm-hmm. I was younger. I had this idea that I was just being tossed around life by life. Mm. And then it took me a while to take ownership and to appreciate how much of my own input was either effective or indeed required <laughs> to reach right. goals. <laughs> so once I kind of got the balls to set some goals, I kind of, I do like it. I mm. like having a think about what I want to achieve. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I feel like I might be a better version of myself or I I want to be that person that sets a goal and sticks to it. Do you have like a handbook list kind of style of advice that you would give them? Well, the single most important thing is that no one is going to set that goal for you. Mm -hmm. Once you've, I don't know, done your (laughs) A-levels people or unless you have a very hands-on boss who really wants to guide you through whatever your chosen career is people are more interested in themselves ultimately Mm. and I think I was waiting for some sort of kindly benefactor type not like mentor type figure to Mm. be guiding me more than anyone was ever going to realistically and it's up to you Mm. and as I learned with X in the City sometimes the, the goals that don't fire off the way that you hope are as valuable as the ones that are an enormous success and it was 
it was incredibly freeing and empowering to realize with running that I was a, I was able I was allowed to set the goal mm. and I was allowed to aim that high mm. I was allowed to go for it whereas before it'd been like oh no it'd be so cringe what happens if I don't make it mm. or oh, this is so mortifying everyone's going to think I'm so sort of full of it that I'm aiming for this mm. no one was ever that interested in me overshooting my expectations yeah. for myself <laughs> and so it it's up to you. you you're allowed to just set yourself any goal and you're allowed to just try mm. that all you're ever doing is trying as long as you're not you know stealing someone else's thunder along the way yeah. it's up to you and I, I don't think I'd ever truly appreciated that until properly like signing up for big marathons right. and receiving the training plan and realising the goal seems so wildly unrealistic when you can barely run 5k 26 Mm. miles is just laughable (laughs) but it's only ever six months worth of tiny chunks of one mile more Mm, mm. it's it's never just oh wake up and run 26 miles it's committing to months of i don't feel like it today Mm. followed by no but it will be worth it it's Mm. a thousand tiny decisions you never have to go okay today i'm doing my goal you just have to decide every day to try and nudge a tiny bit closer. I love that. I might get that tattooed somewhere. It's a thousand, <laughs> it's a thousand tiny decisions. It it's is. True. It is. You never kind of go like, oh, really like, you know, my hit session today was so powerful <laughs> that I'm going to be able to do 12 miles more than last week. It's just the cumulative effect of every Wednesday evening when you wanted to watch Coronation Street, but you said... I'll just do my sprints for 20 minutes mm. and that and that it's only over 20 minutes it's only over 20 yeah. minutes it's true I'm um getting back into running yeah again <coughs> excuse me have and you I'm... got my newsletter no I'm signing <gasps> I just up immediately. started a newsletter for my half marathon and my swimming <gasps> training over the next year right because I just feel like I've got to drag everyone with me yes <laughs> Well, I want the newsletter, but then we can text. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but I have I made massive change. I'm just interested what you think about this mm. because I'm I am definitely somebody who responds to morning exercise. Yes. I'm more alert in the morning. Yeah. Be- once I'm up, um, and I had a DNA test actually recently mm. that confirmed this. And oh was, wow! And it was a DNA test that looked at health, hormones, um, diet, and exercise, mm-hmm. and um, it said endurance is my thing. Endurance yeah. is what my body really likes. And it also said I was a morning person and it said I um, metabolise caffeine really well. Which means okay. I'm the sort of person who can get up, shuffle to the coffee machine, mm-hmm. make myself an espresso, neck it, and then within five minutes I'm like, good to go. Yeah, you should you should train fasted, as Joe Wicks would say. Yep, so I have my espresso at 5.30 and I go for my run. I go inside at the moment because of the terrain and the, ah. tre- and the darkness and all that kind of stuff. And I am running again. Mm-hmm. And... To do that, in order to do that, I'm going to bed at 10 o'clock every evening. Yeah. Well, this is the thing is, once you start exercising more, you instinctively eat better because your body is going, uh, can I have a bit of this, please? Mm. Instead of, you know, it's like, you know, when you're really skint and you just want to buy something to cheer yourself up and you buy something that costs 20 quid, like the world's crappiest T-shirt or something, um, just to give yourself that little hit. Mm. And it's that's it's the same as if you're not exercising, eating badly feels like well, I mean, in for a penny, kind yeah. of like it, yes. you know, my credit card bill is so huge, I may as well mm. buy this kind of feeling. Whereas once you start exercising, you do start to feel, oh my god, I need to be drinking two liters of water mm. a day. Give me my two liters mm. and give me my rest. Yeah, 
And rest is actually kind of, it sounds, I don't know if this is a term that's applicable. It feels like active rest mm. rather than just indolence. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's, I mean, to the outside viewer, you you are just the person lying on the sofa in both instances. Mm. But there's a difference between I've done it and now I rest mm. and lying on the sofa going, oh, I still haven't done it, I still haven't done it. <laughs> but I found that if I, but I... And someone who can easily become a night owl. Mm. And so I had to, I read a piece by Rosie Green in Red Magazine. Mm. It was about, if you want to be a morning person, it starts at 10 o'clock the night before when you go to bed. definitely. And it took a week and a half before I was waking up naturally with my alarm at 5.30. Yeah. And it's that quick. Yeah. It's astonishing um, how quickly it is to form habits. A really good book about that is First Bite by B. Wilson which is about eating habits. Did she write that incredible piece this year about the food yes, industry? Yeah. yeah. I'll put a link and that to that. Was, yeah, that was a natural extension of First Bite, which is about how malleable humans are in a positive and a negative. Mm. So it's really easy to form bad habits, but it is equally good, e- equally easy to form good habits and mm. also to persuade yourself that you like things that you thought were... Um, disgusting mm. and it, it starts with amazing pieces of research about how Japan used to eat incredibly unhealthily as a nation but after World War II decided like it was a governmental decision to eat more healthily and um, there's astonishing research about what children will do instinctively and um, it's so it, it's the single most powerful book about food, eating, diet, anything I've read in the last oh, I'm two years. Buying it on the app as soon as we finish it's, recording. It's really because it's really really interesting about food, and it was what I read instead of any baby weeding books with my baby was because there's a whole chunk about children's habits. Um, but it but because it's extremely sort of forensic about the idea of habits being formed it's sort of applicable to exercise as well Mm. it might you might not have all the research but I found it very easy to sort of look at larger habits because Mm. of realizing how (laughs) highly persuadable we all are highly persuadable um to end I wanted to talk about the different elements there was a brilliant interview you did where you talked about you've got your water element You've yes. got the air and you've got the earth, which is your running. Yes. What was the air one again? I've forgotten. How I don't ridiculous. know. There was an air element. Did you do what something? What was the interview? It was, was it the podcast text? you did. Oh. But, um, and then the suggestion was that fire might be motherhood. And those, oh, those, so those yes. are your four elements. Yeah. And about whether you would write about motherhood. Is that something that's on the horizon? I don't know if I would write about motherhood. Partly because I don't know enough about it. Mm. And also I don't want to make Linus be like a character. Right, yeah. (laughs) But I definitely want to write about the experience of um, pregnancy and birth and post, the the physical and emotional side of it. Mm. Aside from actually going and then looking after a baby, but um, the sort of... the. What, what it does to your body and how you feel about yourself. Mm. Like, I mean, obviously watch quite a lot of In the Night Garden now. <laughs> and I remember a few months ago, when I was still not able to run or properly try and lose weight, I was still breastfeeding. And I remember looking at those characters and thinking that I feel like I'm wearing one of those outfits. <laughs> like, those big sort of Teletubbies. <laughs> I have to admit, I haven't watched In the Night Garden, but I it, can imagine. Just like a Teletubby outfit. <laughs> right. And I just felt like, I felt like I've been wearing one of those for about two years now. Mm. 
and that there's there's something so extraordinary about the sort of massive overshare about some elements of pregnancy mm. and and post birth and massive undershare about others and i also think that we are as a nation extremely badly served by postnatal care mm. and i want to write about that and what what we need to be doing cuz the, the the french are extraordinarily good at it yes. and i'm really interested in their model and what how we can use that to best serve ourselves so mm. Yeah, that idea of taking back ownership after mm. being squatted in for a while. And <laughs> I don't know, I found it, I was expecting that pregnancy for me would be really empowering. I think I think I thought I would, especially after such a long wait, mm. I think I thought I'd met, spend more time swanning around feeling like, I am life, I am the giver <laughs> of life. And actually, I am Mother Earth. <laughs> yeah, I just felt like, seriously when do I get my body back I really felt like I I remember just saying at one point I really cannot believe that Alien was not written by a pregnant woman (laughs) just (laughs) even if the screenwriter was a man I think it was I looked it up um I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure his wife wrote it when he was asleep (laughs) and he took credit because it's such a that feeling of being invaded was so strong in me of Mm. not not negatively Mm. like obviously I adore my baby but of not not being in control of Mm. my own body or having any sense of agency over it was really weird and unnerving the journey of um reclaiming that but yes it, which, that's what I want to write about because and, I think it's I think it must be very common and manifests itself in lots of different ways mm. whether it's sort of sex stuff or um exercise stuff or just you know getting dressed in the morning mm. stuff um yeah so I think that's but I but I think I would do that and then leave it I don't I don't want to be one of those people whose career then just becomes tethered to their position as a mother I think mm. that's um not something I want to do. <laughs> do you have any other plans that you can share with us? I really want to learn to surf, mm. but I don't know if that's a book or if that will just be a little project like my boxing and ballet. <laughs> it's something you'll share on social media, but maybe not. In yeah, French. and I really want to. Um, the only other sort of sport that I want to take up is cycling. But that is less to do with wanting to cycle and have a you know really expensive bike, but more to do with I've got I've I found writing about the sea gave me real um, a renewed interest in nature, and I oh, think okay. cycling you can get out to yeah. more places and go into the countryside and see more and see more sights and vistas and panoramas and all of that kind of thing. I love the fact that in all of your descriptions, whether it's running or swimming or cycling. It's not about will I look good in the season's <laughs> mid-rise jeans. It, the vocabulary you use and the descriptive terms are all about how the sea looks or feels. Yeah. And there's a brilliant thing I heard you say about when um, it's slightly overcast and it sort of makes the sound echo a bit when you're muffled, in the water. Yeah. And that, I think, is lovely because, as you say, if you just focus on your app and, oh, how many miles mm. am I on today? You can miss... Yeah, I have no desire to be on a 800 pound bike with a heart rate monitor strapped to me, pumping up a hill, mm. trying to feel the burn. But if that's what it will take to be able to do some beautiful cycling in mountains in Spain, mm. then I'll do that bit because I think that bit will be sublime mm. and enriching and exciting. Um, so we'll see. 
I remember listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast, and I forget who the guest was, but he was talking about how I think he would cycle along um, the beach in uh, LA. Yeah. Um, and he would always try and do it in like a particular time. Mm-hmm. And one day, and he would always like race, 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 mm. race. And one day he thought, you know what, today I'm just going to take it easy. I'm going mm. to um, look at the seagulls. I'm going to look at the water. I'm going to just see what happens and when he got to the end he realised he'd shaved like 90 seconds off yeah and it was, it's really common with running yeah. as well if you leave it at home you sometimes end up doing better because mm. you're not I was reading some research in the New York Times yesterday about they've done some research into people who smile one of the um, top marathon runners I can't remember which one I'll send you the link um, he finished a marathon recently one of the elite marathons and kept smiling towards the end and the and it was because they've done research recently that people that smile when they're exercising do better and it's that kind of i mean for as long as people are doing research like that and i can find to read about it i'll be exercising because i find that just fascinating there's something to do with the jaw as well i think um footballers when they take uh, penalty kicks um they train to open their mouth at the point they kick the ball so that they're not tense so it doesn't oh yeah that's just something to do yeah it really does right (laughs) on that note thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for um not being frightened of the girl who like over (laughs) over overshared with you a few years ago it's been a delight Listeners, I'm going to put all of the show notes, um, all of the show notes, obviously, I'm going to put all of the links to everything that we've discussed, all of your links, I will put the link yeah. to your newsletter um, and to the books that we've mentioned in the show notes that will be on emmaguns.com and iTunes. And thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you enjoyed that episode of the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could go over to iTunes or wherever it is that you listen and leave a review and rating to say what you enjoyed about the show and why you'll be tuning in again. I hope you'll be joining me for the next episode. Trust me, there are, I have two fantastic guests coming on the show, so I will see you on the next one. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.